Hello and welcome to the Ed Search On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young. Okay, to get to Marty Ringel's office at Reed College in Portland, you have to climb to the top floor of the Educational Technology Center building and get buzzed into a locked door that says, this is a secured area in, in red type. I felt like I was making a pilgrimage to, to the digital equivalent of a wise old master at the top of some mountain. And in some ways, it's not too far off. You see, Marty Ringel, who works up here, he's been in EdTech for more than 40 years, and, and he's seen it all. The birth of the personal computer and its early use at college, uh, the building out of the internet, which started at colleges, and the arrival of smartphones. I made this trip recently because I wanted some perspective. And frankly, because I've felt lately like it's it's hard to cover technology these days. I've been tracking this space for a while myself, and I feel like I used to write a, a lot more, or at least more frequently, features about innovators that would spin visions of, of exciting new futures, um, of how tech could change the world. But these days, it feels like digital tech is often infecting society almost with problems, or at least breeding division and polarization. And sure, it's nice to take an Uber, but the broader costs can seem kind of high. Before Ringel studied tech, he specialized in philosophy. He's one of those rare academic humanists of his generation who devoted their careers to tech and trying to design a better world with it. So I wanted to know what he thought of what's happening these days and what he sees as the legacy of this digital revolution he helped bring in. I guess I first should start and tell you one unique thing about Ringel. He was personal friends with Steve Jobs. And sometimes he served as a sounding board for the iconic CEO back in the day. As I talked to Ringel, he was full of stories about those interactions. I remember a meeting at Apple once where Steve walked into the room and pulled a little thing out of his pocket uh, that was probably meant out of wood. Um, I don't remember exactly. But he started doing his pitch, and there were about maybe 20 of us in the room. And he said, um, how would you feel if you could have a thing like this, this big, just a few inches high and a couple of inches wide in your pocket, and it could contain 4,000 songs. And how would you feel if you could get those songs by pulling them down from the air? And how would you feel if it would only cost you like 99 cents a song? Would that be incredible or what? And um, I remember sitting there and saying and blurting out, yeah, that would be fine, but what does that have to do with higher education? And his response was, that's why you guys are here. I'm producing the technology. You use your imagination to figure out what is the answer to your question. How could you use that in higher education? It's funny. I, as I listened, I was struck by this depiction of how Jobs saw education and, and his inventions Today, the ethos in Silicon Valley is to move fast and break things, as, as Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg famously said. But Steve Jobs was a hardware guy. And though he talked about think differently, his message, and I think the spirit of his era of tech, was to persuade people to try digital tools to, in whatever they were doing. And Ringel talked in much the same way about his philosophy of bringing new digital services to campuses. And I've been a technology administrator for 30 years. I've got a, um, a small community here at Reed College. We do technological change and innovation all the time. And we do care about those things. So when we introduce a new system, like uh, a learning management system, we don't just say, hey, 
five years from now, everybody's going to be using that. That's going to be fantastic. Let's just roll this out and shove it down their throats. What we do is pay a lot of attention to how we can do change management in a way that is maybe take a little bit longer, maybe um, take uh, a somewhat more circuitous route. We'll get to where we want to go. Maybe we'll get there sooner. Maybe we'll get there later. Maybe we'll be first kid on the block. Maybe we won't be. But we'll get there, and we'll do it in a way that um, the community is, is comforted that uh, technology is serving their needs and not vice versa. And if we could do it at Reed, we could do it in higher education. If we can do it in higher education, we can do it in society in general. And... Um, I, I don't know that there's a, a compelling reason other than somebody who is, con, is so focused on the um, profit you know, margin of the next quarter that they can't step back for a minute and see that you know, um, uh, there, are, there are lots of different routes to get across the river. Uh, you don't have to take the one that's filled with crocodiles and lose half your staff in the process. Take a little while go to the left, go to the right, find a land bridge, um, do it intelligently. Here are some of the highlights of my interview, starting with me asking exactly how Ringle came to meet Steve Jobs. In 83, um, Steve and uh, a couple of his cronies, Dan Lewin at Apple, uh, conceived of this idea, which I think was brilliant, was that if you really want to penetrate the world, a good place to start is with education whether it's higher ed or K-12 and higher ed, um, if you capture people's minds when they're young and you do that with whatever technology, whatever creative works, um, that's going to stick with them through the rest of their lives. They sort of pioneered that and tell companies, now this is the playbook now. Right. And <laughs> everybody's figured that out since then. But, um, and I'm not sure that they were the first to figure it out, but they certainly leveraged it beautifully. And so they created something... Um, that became known as the Apple University Consortium. And so in 83, uh, they were inviting uh, individuals and groups of people from around the country in higher education to come to Cupertino and look at what they were going to release. And um, I was at, uh, <coughs> excuse me, at Vassar. And so I and three other people, I think, went out to Cupertino and... Um, we, uh, uh, we got to see a lot of stuff, and in a subsequent visit, um, I met Steve, and um, uh, there's a certain amount of irony that uh, Vassar did not immediately adopt Apple. Mm -hmm. uh, we had connections with IBM. We had connections with a company called DEC that no longer exists. DEC, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Digital Equipment Corporation. Uh, who's producing a, an IBM PC clone called the Rainbow that ran on MS-DOS uh, or CPM. I can't remember which. And um, uh, it, was, it was all exciting and seminal. Um, but that was the initial interaction that I had with Steve. Um, in the next few years, um, things changed. He got booted out of, I think we've gone over this territory, he got booted out of Apple when Scully came in. And I was uh, on a long-term consultancy with Carnegie Mellon, 
working on a project called the Interuniversity Consortium for Educational Computing. And they were focused on something called the 3M machine. So at the time, or the scholar's workstation. At the time, the, the conception was of having a machine that had a megapixel display, um, a meg of memory, and a million instruction per, section, per second CPU, hmm. uh, MIPS. So that's the 3Ms. And the concept was that if you could have a unit like that, a platform like that, that was Unix-based and powerful enough, we could really do some interesting research and scholarship and teaching and computer science and so on. So I was charged to um, create a meeting that would bring together um, the top colleges and universities in the country, 15 or 20 of them, with... um, folks from Silicon Valley who would be in the best position to create such a machine and market it to higher ed, and uh, representatives from uh, half a dozen or a dozen foundations, both public and private, who would be willing to sink money into the enterprise so that they would give us the money and we would use that money to pay for um, the equipment, the hardware and software, uh, so it was a three-way um, deal. And so we had people from uh, lots of foundations, foundations that I don't even know if they still exist. Um, you may never heard of the Amico Education Foundation <laughs> or the, you know, the Exxon Education Foundation, um, but you've probably uh, heard of the Carnegie Corporation and you know, folks like that. And Steve, who was pretty much out of work at that point, Um, and was sort of wandering around. So I invited him to come to Pittsburgh uh, to the meeting, and he came. And um, he sat there through much of the meeting. Uh, Dick Seyert was president at the time, and he gave the preamble, and we had, you know, wonderful people from CMU talking about an operating system, a Unix-based operating system they had created called Mach, which... Um, ultimately became the foundation for Next OS and eventually for uh, OS X. And uh, during one of the coffee breaks, um, I went over to Steve and I saw him smiling, which I hadn't seen him do for a while. And I said, what are you thinking? And he said, I'm thinking I know what's going to happen next. And he went back to California, he talked to somebody from Stanford, a faculty member, and I'm not sure what the connection was there. But uh, the next thing I knew, um, a number of us were being invited to be on the advisory board of this company called Next. Mm -hmm. And those were incredibly exciting times. Um, I actually sat... uh, So Steve went to Japan. He came back. He decided to create um, uh, the factory for Next in Fremont, California. And uh, to inaugurate it, he invited the advisory board uh, and uh, three people who were actually the board members to a dinner on the floor of the factory. And there were, you know, rounds of eights. There was a little three-piece ensemble playing, you know, violin music. There was a photographer. And there was an, an automated assembly line that he'd learned about from looking at people in Japan. And uh, he said that he was going to demonstrate the creation, the automated creation of a motherboard. 
And in those days, that was pretty exciting. I mean, uh, that hadn't been done in the U.S. before, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, going down the, uh, the stairs or escalator onto the floor of the factory, I was standing next to this, this guy uh, who was about my height or shorter, and I said, um, what do you do? And he said, I'm a consultant. And I said, what kind of consulting do you do? And he said, well, you know, technology. And um, we had a very, very friendly chat. Um, and I got an elbow in the ribs at one point uh, and kicked under the table, in fact, um, because I was asking these very naive, stupid questions. That turned out to be Ross Perot. <laughs> okay. Whom I didn't know and had never heard of. Sure. Um, but have heard of since. Um, so those were really exciting times. We we, you know, so we saw the development of the uh, the next cube. Uh, Steve was so proud of the the um, the logo, the artwork on the logo. I said, if if you can get a hundred thousand dollars to do that, I'm in the wrong profession. Um, but you know, everything was done elegantly and beautifully. Um, we had late night arguments about what the uh, price point should be and what the marketing strategy should be. Um, you know pretty much how that story wound up uh, as far as Next was concerned, but not as far as the whole enterprise was concerned because um, Steve brought that technology back to Apple when he went back to Apple. Mm -hmm. And life continued on into the 90s, and here we are today. No, it's really fascinating. And so I want to get back to that in a minute, but I also am curious, you know, you've, you've seen... You know, you're at this phase where you're seeing like what could be, you're dreaming of what could be when technology, mm -hmm. like that academic workstation that you right. you talked about, it's sort of here, obviously, more oh, powerful. It, it's, right. It's, it's, it's here. Here and gone. <laughs> All, right. But what, what would you say has been the biggest benefit from having that, you know, that tool come to reality in the academy? Well... In answer to your question of, you know, what has, what have the descendants of the 3M workstation um, platforms given us? They've given us um, dance and choreography software. They've given us uh, computational graphics software. They've given us music composition and notation software. They've, uh, you, you go across the arts, the humanities, all of the social sciences, essentially, um, you know, uh, if you look at economics, um, it, uh, you know, every discipline you can imagine uh, is, uh, to a greater or lesser extent, taking advantage of um, computing power that is unlocking doors for research um, that didn't exist. And it's important to note that one of the things we said then, and I believe fully now, uh, as far as the benefits of technology are concerned, um, is that in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, um, people often said, um, look, technology is, is fine in its place. It's basically derivative. It's not hmm. going to lead the way in anything except maybe in computer science, whatever that is. Right. Um, because ultimately, um, take any discipline, what you can do today, manually, you can do tomorrow with a computer a little bit faster, a little bit, I don't know, uh, probably more expensive and blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's not really transformative. 
The reality is that people's imagination go far beyond that. And uh, if you look at the kinds of things that people have done with high-powered, um, you know, advanced computing, high-performance computing, um, the workstations of today, um, it's not just a little bit faster or a little bit more economical or something. Um, there are vast new avenues of research and scholarship that didn't exist 30 years ago or 40 years ago. People weren't conceiving of uh, what something like bioinformatics could be and what data science applied to urban planning could be. They couldn't imagine if you could marshal not millions of bits of data, but gazillions of bits of data, you could start predicting weather. <laughs> you can start doing all kinds of things that were unimaginable, uh, except to some people who had really good imaginations. And that's where we are today. And as far as where we're going tomorrow, it's the same story. Um, if you were to ask me, well, what do I think the applications 20 years from now are going to be? Who knows? Isaac Asimov probably knew better than any of us because that was how his mind worked in, in, you know, in such an imaginative way of uh, conceiving um, you know, beyond the limits of what we think of as tomorrow. He was thinking about the next day. And I think that's, uh, I mean, um, look at all the disruptive technologies that have taken place in the last few years. It's trite to say, well, you know, everything's online these days. No, it's not that everything's online. A lot of colleges are still on the ground. They're not trying to compete in the online space. But the technology resources that they're applying, what students are doing with those resources, these are the people who are using technology resources in ways that we hadn't imagined, who are going to be creating not just the innovations, but the industries the jobs that go with those industries, the investments of tomorrow, and they're thinking of these things in ways that, um, you know, people of my generation and my age, uh, if we had hair, we'd be pulling it out, scratching our heads and saying, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. To them, it's just the natural next step. All this is certainly the kind of the positive, exciting things that have happened. And um, I think people can see those on their campuses wherever they are. Mm -hmm. But there's also been, from some of these very same machines, unintended consequences that we're all kind of grappling with. And it seems like right now, a lot of people are kind of didn't expect to see also things like the Facebook, you know, people being able to mm -hmm. politically kind of manipulate people or, um, you know, the, these kind of social manipulations that people are now looking at in a different way, these same platforms. I don't know. Are, are, do you? What are, you, are was is some of that surprising? How? Do, what is your take on? I mean, you, this is, you know, um, this is a time where it seems like a lot of people in technology that built this world that we're living in are, are also having some second thoughts or concerns about um, the well, ethical implications of what what what's been right. built. Well, it's interesting because there are um, more people thinking about it. There there are more people writing about it. There are conferences about it. Uh, but you recall I said that when I was in graduate school, I was asked if I could teach a course in ethics to the engineers, to the software engineers, and I said I would. And um, in that course, 
one of the key topics was, um, you remember back in the uh, 30s and 40s when um, uh, physicists were being asked to um, focus on nuclear energy and develop uh, weaponized nuclear energy, um, that there was some uh, awareness that this was letting the genie out of the bottle. And as we saw, historically, it was quite a genie. Um, and so a point that I was making to the engineers, who were very much heads down in coding, that the artificial intelligence uh, uh, research that they were doing today could easily, uh, at some point down the road, um, become a critical ethical issue. Now, we've seen lots of movies, you know, the um, Terminator movies of what the future could be like if the robots rise. There are people today who are, you know, um, well-respected, well-known, who are expressing anxiety and concerns about this. Um, I personally think those are very well-placed concerns, um, uh, not just in terms of the sort of the immediate obvious concerns about privacy and, um, you know, tracking and profiling people to within an inch of their lives and all those sorts of things, but uh, decision-making, um, uh, understanding the the strengths and weaknesses, the limits of technology, not just today but tomorrow, uh, I think is vital. And if we don't, if we don't pay at least as much attention to um, the uh, what happens if uh, the most powerful technologies we can think of fall into the hands of people who have no conscience, whether that's uh, nuclear power. Um, whether it's artificial intelligence, whether it's anything else, from an ethical standpoint, it all reduces to um, uh, once you let the genie out of the bottle, you can't put it back in again. And the benefits uh, generally come with risks. And if we focus entirely on the benefits and we don't pay any attention to the risks, um, by the time we recognize them, um, it, disaster may already have struck. So what do we do? Well, I think the people who are um, making the noises now are um, doing us a service. I think that um, uh, colleges and universities uh, and in the private sector and in the government sector um, that are working feverishly to create all the new and exciting technologies, um, extended reality, wow, that sounds really great. Um, uh, there should be a required... A course on uh, ethical dimensions of technology to make sure that, that people who are in the trenches are exposed to these things and that there's some thought being given at every level to, uh, you know, putting in safeguards. Um, how do, how do yeah. we do this in a way that is not going to come back and bite us? Um, and then, you know, we try to be optimistic. I mean, we've had nuclear weapons now for over half a century, and we haven't blown ourselves up yet, which is a good thing. And uh, my hope would be that um, in the next 50 years, as artificial intelligence propagates through every aspect of everything we do, and our ability to marshal data uh, and, and understand the data um, becomes something out of a science fiction novel, that... Um, we'll remind ourselves that we are still human beings living in a society 
and keep ourselves focused on what we value and what our goals are and how we relate to one another and not wake up one morning and realize, um, uh, you know, we've reached our expiration notice. So you're not, you sound optimistic. Is that fair? Um, yeah, I, you know, I am optimistic. Um, I, I, you know, if I weren't optimistic, uh, it would be a pretty dismal, you know, future to look at. So there is one other thing that I wanted to ask Marty Ringle about. It's about a controversy that's been playing out at Reed for a couple years over a required course for freshmen called Hume 110, an introduction to Western humanities. It focuses on the classics of Greek literature and culture. Think Homer, Sophocles, Plato, Aristotle, that kind of thing. And the course has been around for more than 60 years, and, and it's a signature of the curriculum. And its material wrinkle as a philosopher probably knows well. But in 2016, student groups started protesting the course, arguing it's that it's racist and overly focused on one cultural group and way of thinking, rather than exposing students to a broader range of thought. Protesters sat in front of the room during every class, holding signs with slogans such as, We demand space for students of color. We cannot be erased. And stop silencing black and brown voices. The rest of society is already standing on their necks. To get a sense of what that felt like for students, I actually stopped a a sophomore on her way to class to ask her to paint the picture for me. So what is your name? Maya. Okay, and do you mind if I get your last name to you? Uh, Siebert. And you're a sophomore? Yeah. At Reed? Mm-hmm. And so oh, you were in the class last year, I hear. What was the experience of taking it like as far as like the... Because people were holding signs in the class. Like, can you describe... Like, yeah, I mean, the signs as far as we knew had been happening for about a year already when we got there. So we kind of had been told to expect it. Um, the particulars last year were... Um, the way they chose to do that was by sitting in class, which was, like, for the most part, fine. Sitting in um, class with signs, like, at the lecture on the front of the stage, like, or... Right, yeah, down in the, um, the well. Yeah, the, um, lecture well, which was fine, um, as long as the protesters were being, like, quiet, and then when people started having issues was when there were, like, essentially some kind of, like, yelling matches between the protesters and, like, the professors, which... And you saw that? Yeah, um... What was it like? I mean, what did it feel like to be a student in this class? You're a freshman. As a freshman, it felt a little bit like, uh, I guess, more than I bargained for. But also, um, I don't know. It didn't make me, like, not want to be in the class or anything. It kind of felt like I just needed to, like, roll with it. It was kind of exciting in a way, I guess. I was just hoping that it would actually, like, lead to some kind of change in some way. (laughs) Yeah, um, I mean, there were definitely, like a few times where I wish that maybe they would have done things a little bit differently or things wouldn't have gotten so intense. Um, But I think it all kind of worked out in a pretty good way. So this is a very different style of cultural intervention than Ringel described. And let's face it, even though that controversy isn't about technology, it is part of a broader cultural movement that's been shaped by social media. So what does Ringel think of all this? Well, I think think, uh, what happened at Reed... Uh, the past two years over the uh, curriculum in Hume 110 uh, does reflect what's going on certainly throughout higher education and um, possibly in the rest of society. Um, I'm um, going to be 70 years old <clears throat> next summer. So I've had almost um, seven decades of opportunity um, to see things change. And certainly the world that I was born into and, and raised in the 1950s 
is in so many ways vastly different than the world today, not just technologically, but in every other possible way. And um, so I've seen a lot of change. Um, what I was saying a moment ago about how you nurture change, how you manage change, what happened at Reed, um, I think in the end, there has been change. The curriculum itself in the HUM 110 course um, going forward is going to be different. Um, the point that, that I think you'll find lots of disagreement about is whether that change could have taken place in a more collegial and civil atmosphere than it did, or whether the, um, the shouting was an essential component. Some people will argue that without the shouting, without the confrontation, without the uh, occasional um, injury to someone's um, psyche, nothing would happen. Others, on the contrary, will say uh, in an intelligent society, uh, in a collegial society, if there is a, a valid point and it's dealt with in a civil way, that that will produce change. I'm not sure that the two sides of that argument will ever agree. Uh, and uh, and unfortunately, it's very difficult to run controlled experiments <laughs> to see, well, let's try it this way and see if it works, and if it doesn't work, then we'll try it that way. Um, what we're seeing across not just America but across the world today is sort of the macrocosmic version of that where um, I think lots and lots and lots of people feel that they don't have a voice. And not just on one side or the other side, but on every side, people don't feel that they're being heard, that their values are not being expressed. Um, they, people are clinging and cleaving to um, uh, you know, isms and idols and saying, you know, it's, it's got to be all or nothing. It's gotta, you know, you've got to be on this side or you're, you know, you're with us or you're against us and, and so on. And so what's happening is that um, discourse, not just civil discourse, but any discourse has been replaced by so much um, blathering of uh, slogans. And uh, if you're on the other side of the fence, you know, you're an enemy of the people, you're an enemy of the state. There, we have nothing we can possibly say to you, and that's on every side. I don't mean just, you know, political party side. I mean everything. Now, when I was growing up, we had something um, reminiscent of this in uh, in age barriers. So there was a slogan when I was in college of "Don't trust anyone over 30. and uh, you know, from forty thousand feet away, that looked like everybody under thirty felt one way, and everybody over thirty felt a different way. And of course, that wasn't true. There's you know lots of things mixed up there. Today, the dividing lines are in every direction. Mm -hmm. There are gender dividing lines. There are age dividing lines. There are sexual preference dividing lines. There are political affiliation dividing lines. There are economic dividing lines. There's so many dividing lines that it's like looking at a mosaic. With all the lines and uh, you know the tiles, you're hard pressed to step back long enough to see the picture in the mosaic that is actually a single coherent picture. But again, if you live long enough, you realize, um, you know, plus ça change, um, plus ça reste la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. This is human nature we're dealing with, and. Technology may be changing rapidly, but um, human psychology hasn't 
changed a whole lot in the last 100,000 years, and um, I'm not seeing the likelihood that in the next 100,000 it's going to change that much. And the question is, um, how do you how do you embrace what's going on, tune down the rhetoric, lower the temperature, and get people to step back and realize that you know we're cohabitants on this planet, in this universe. We have more in common than we have that you know that we are different over. The inherent tribalism, competitiveness, and you know. Uh, uh, if I don't devour you, you're going to devour me mentality, that somehow there have been periods in history where we've been able to, if not vanquish that, at least contend with it and manage it. <coughs> uh, if you go back to uh, the 1780s in this country and you look at the the actual writings and the actual literature of the people who founded the United States... You see all of that contentiousness, but you also see some pretty magnificent um, and successful efforts to transcend that and to try to build something, um, uh, a coalition that was common and that would respect human rights and be able to move forward. It was never perfect. Hmm. Um, you know, 50 years later or so, 50, 60, 70 years later, we had the Civil War. You know, it erupted in one of the bloodiest conflicts in in history. Um, but the efforts that they undertook to overcome their differences, to hear one another, to talk with one another, to have civil dis- discourse, um, was a departure from the fact that for the you know the previous decade they were you know fighting to the death with uh, with Great Britain. And they had come from a horribly bloody war and the loss of a lot to try to build something where that wouldn't happen. And uh, their dedication um, produced something that, you know, despite the ups and downs, has thus far lasted for more than two centuries. One can only hope that whatever is going on today, whether it's um, something microcosmic like a Hume 110 course at Reed, or whether it's macrocosmic, like um, you know what's going on with Russia, China, the EU, uh, the US, and so on, that there are enough people with cool enough heads to be able to step back and say, um, look at the end game. Um, do we want to find a way to live together and get along? Um, or are we just partying like it's 1999 and the hell with it, let's just go for broke, and if if we blow ourselves up, eh, it's been a good ride. Um, I certainly hope that's not the way it's going to go. This has been the Ed Surge On Air podcast. Every week we bring you conversations like this one, so we hope you'll subscribe and keep up with future episodes. This one was produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.